Hey guys, before we get started on the show, I wanted to take a second to promote our merch. Brand new, two t-shirts up on alovewiththeprocess.com in our merch section. Go there, check them out. Two different designs. We have the storyboard design, which was hand-sketched by myself. Thank you very much. Uh, It comes in two different types. You can either get a short sleeve black t-shirt that has the awesome storyboard sketch on the front featuring actress Evelina Marie. Um, but then uh, on the back, it just says in a classy little way, a little ILP podcast right up on top. Or if you are someone that is afraid of the cold and you need a bit more coverage, right? Then you can pick yourself up the long black long sleeve tee, which has the sketch on the front and down the sleeve. It gives the whole logo for the show. Very excited about that. I think the uh, short sleeve is 25, the long sleeve is 30, not a bad deal, average prices for t-shirts. All the money that we get from that goes towards the show. The best way to support the show, best way to advertise the show, and these are limited edition tees, guys. So we're just doing them for a limited limited time. Uh, Also up there is our 12KM X-ray skull shirt. Uh, something that I have been talking about putting up for quite some time now. Finally did it. Uh, a lot of you guys have been loving that shirt. It is up there. I think that one's also 25 bucks. And if you buy either one of those shirts, send us your confirmation. Say, hey, I want to see 12 kilometers. Send it to in love with the process at gmail.com and we will send you a, fr- a link to see the movie for free. So anybody who buys a t-shirt gets to see 12KM for free. It's just our appreciation to you appreciating us by buying t-shirts and supporting the show. So thanks guys and get ready. Brand new episode coming up next. Jump into the passenger seat of my DeLorean and punch in 1969. A time of war, a time of racism, religious conflict, a time of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now, it's not a stretch of the imagination to imagine yourself living in that time period, especially with the world that we currently live in. But try to imagine that you're a kid in the late 60s, desperately searching for a group to fit in with, looking for a scene that accepts you for who you are, looking for that music that speaks to your generation. This is a time without the internet, no cell phone and no Spotify. What are you gonna do, right? (laughs) Sure, you have radio, but they're playing the same old stuff. The Beatles, Elvis, all the shit that your parents like. Where's that dangerous music? Then, as you walk through a drugstore, a magazine shop, or even a record store, you see it. Hidden in the corner, a small, rough-around-the-edges magazine with a cartoon of a milk bottle shrugging with a sarcastic smirk. Cream. Like the band? But it's not spelled the same way. Cream. You look inside, and the rest of the world becomes dull and muffled as you get lost in the pages of risque photos of rock gods and musicians articles that your mother would yell at you for reading, and a picture of Debbie Harry that makes you want to hide this magazine with those Playboys under your bed. 
This magazine is dangerous, it's raunchy, and it's exposing you to a whole new collection of musicians that you've never heard of. That is what a good rock and roll magazine can do. This is what Cream Magazine was known for. What many people didn't know was that this magazine was run and put together by a crazy group of misfits, outcasts, people living a crazy band lifestyle of their own. That's what today's episode is about. We are going deep into Cream Magazine through our guest on today's show. He just finished doing a documentary, a rock doc called Cream, America's only rock magazine. I ended up seeing an ad for it on Instagram and instantly I was hooked. And uh, for those of you who don't know my history, when I was a young kid, I actually got my first real job was in a record store. I was completely infatuated with rock and roll music. I wanted to know how it was made. I wanted to know how albums were made. I wanted to be a part of that. And I remember a time where I would go to the music store to learn about life. I would go learn about what other people were listening to. I would go learn about sounds that weren't native to where I grew up in Boston. And I remember looking at the people that worked behind the register, looking at the people that suggested albums and saying, I want to know about all the shit that they love because they're so fucking passionate about it. Uh, for those of you who are listening to the show who are a little bit older and remember going to the music store, how often did you go up to the counter with a CD or cassette tape or even a vinyl and stick it on that counter and, <laughs> and that guy behind the counter would just sort of look at you odd and go, Are you sure you want this one? Because if you like this, you're going to love where this comes from. And they would introduce you to a whole other world that you have never been to exposed to before. And I love that. I miss that. And recently, uh, for my birthday, Gina bought me a record player. And I didn't think I would need something like that. I didn't think it was important because we live in a time period where we can have fucking thousands of songs on our phone, right? We don't even have to choose the music that we listen to. The stuff will choose it for us. So it'll go through and pick out what's best, right? And continue to play stuff based upon an algorithm. I hate that. I get so bored. I get so lost in it. And you've heard me talk about this on uh, other episodes and prior episodes of the show. And so what getting an, a record player did is it gave me the reason to go back into music stores and to go back through and flip through albums and pull out vibes and listen to stuff that I'm hearing in the record store and talk to other people and really gave me the opportunity to connect personally with music again. Now, why is this important? Well, A, because I make movies and movies, a big part of movies is sound, 50% of movies are sound. And I'm always looking for some sort of emotional response from the music that I put in my films. And I'm looking for something that is inspired from somewhere other than another movie another director i'm always looking deep looking for those deep cuts we love tarantino's movies for that reason we like guy ritchie's movies for that reason nicholas refen does the same thing they all have a vinyl collection i guarantee you and they love the act of playing albums now i know that there are those of you out there that are like we don't get it this is nostalgia stick with me through the show because maybe you'll see what it is that we're talking about. And we're not necessarily talking about vinyls on the show, and we're not just talking about music. 
We're talking about how we process information right now. We're talking about getting two sides of the story. We're talking about learning how and understanding where the stuff that we identify ourselves with comes from. And that's what I'm excited about. And I'm excited to talk with today's guest, director Scott Crawford. So Scott directed the cream documentary that is very exciting. It comes out, we're recording this now on the 26th. I think his piece comes out on Amazon at the end of the week, which is cool. So it will already be out on Amazon when you guys are listening to this episode. I can't wait to get in nerdy and deep with this guy because not only is he a director, but he started as a guy that would publish magazines. So he actually founded uh, Metrozine and he launched Harp Magazine as well. So two different types of alternative rock and roll magazines or alternative rock and roll magazines. Man, my mouth needs to catch up. Um, and when I say alternative, it's like, okay, so he was making the more dangerous version of Spin Magazine, right? The same way that Cream was the more dangerous version of Rolling Stone Magazine. And for those of you listening who really don't get why these magazines were so important, continue to listen to the show because a little bit of history will help you understand um, how people heard new music, where people found new music, where people could have opinions on things that were different than the norm, um, and the power of magazines. And then we also talk a little bit about the death of print media and why print media died, and then the result of the new media, right? And we have, anybody can write an article, all these articles aren't fact-checked, anything can go out there. So it's interesting stuff, it's a great conversation. I cannot wait to get into it with you guys. Before I do, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for continuously supporting the show. Thank you for being here. We hope that you guys have enjoyed our prior episodes. We've got a great response on the Frank episode, the chef episode that we did. We're very happy with that. We're happy that you guys are excited about that. Um, on Greg Frazier's episode, very excited about how you guys responded to that. Do me a favor, write me some messages on Instagram. Do it this week, drop me some notes. Let me know what you think of this show. Let me know what your favorite show over the past month has been. Very excited about that stuff. Very excited to meet these people and to introduce you to these folks because that is what I always love to do. Back in my days when I was training to be in radio, back in my days in the music, in the music store, I like to share things that make me feel good with you guys. And I hope you find a bit of inspiration there. I hope it helps you look at how things are going right now a little bit differently. But more importantly, I hope you have fucking fun doing it. All right. So without further ado, let's get right to it. You know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Find that nice comfy place that you sit around and listen to music. Get ready, because we're going to play some fucking rock and roll for you on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Scott, thanks for joining us on the show, my man. Hey, thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't wait, man. Like I <laughs> was saying off air, uh, I saw the ads for your film, uh, your new film, Cream, America's Only Rock Magazine. Uh, and I am a, I mean, I'm sure you know a little bit about me. I've been doing music videos for years, so I'm a little rock nerd myself. Sure. Uh, and I was like, fuck, sounds like a movie I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, um, 
it's really about the, you know, Cream existed for, you know, over 20 years, but the film really focuses on the, the heyday of the magazine, which was the 70s. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if you like your Ramones and you like, uh, you know, Aerosmith and you like those, you know, it, it, they were the magazine that were, that were covering. And of course, Kiss, um, you know, they loved, well, I don't know about all the writers. I don't think all the writers love Kiss, but they certainly <laughs> covered Kiss a lot. And um, yeah, it really gave a lot of bands their start. I mean, um, you know, including like uh, Iggy and the Stooges and the MC5. So mm-hmm. um, really kind of a who's who of, of uh, you know, some of the most important, you know, arguably most important uh, rock and roll bands uh, in the last 30, 40 years. Hell yeah, man. And, you know, Detroit's music scene was huge, especially at that time period. So um, it's very influential. I know a lot of people that still talk about that magazine. I mean, in the, in your film itself, you've, you've got a lot of really great, uh, cameos from rock stars that were influenced by that magazine. Uh, I really liked, uh, what's his name? Lead singer from REM. I really liked his take on it, which was really fantastic. Um, I, I thought Michael, I thought he did a great job and I really liked how, oh, I don't want to give too much away, but he, he really talks and I think this is something that, you know, is kind of a unifying thing throughout the uh, film is just that, um, you know, you could be a misfit and find your home in cream. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you, you know, so many of us, uh, you know, growing up, especially when you're a, young, a teenager, you know, you're, you're just you're alienated. You're not sure where you get, you're awkward. You're all those things. And to be able to find a safe place in a magazine, you think about that for a second. That's a pretty big deal. And, and, yeah. um, and Michael was able to do that with cream and talks about it in a very eloquent sort of way. Um, so yeah, that was one of my favorite quotes I thought in the film. Yeah. He's fantastic. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I grew up, I was born in 78. So I grew up, through that whole period of like reading Rolling Stone magazine and heavy metal and all that stuff. And, and, uh, it's so funny now <laughs> with the, essentially the death of print media and the, yeah. and the whole new generation of folks that are used to getting all their content online. And now with music, most of it is like they subscribe to Spotify and that's, that's the extent of it. Uh, Back in those days when magazines were in their heyday, that was not only a way to figure out what new music was coming out, but it was a way to figure out what was cool and what felt cool. And um, and uh, Cream just felt like the more dangerous version of what Rolling Stone became. Um, so, and I know that you're no stranger to actual print publications because you yourself were you like founded a magazine, Metrozine, and then uh, also launched Heart Magazine. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, reading cream is what made me as a kid want, because I, I, even at that age, you know, you don't know what the hell you're doing at age, you know, 12 or 13, but you knew enough to know that, Hey, I think I could do this. Cause like, it's not, wasn't super glossy. The layouts weren't winning. Let's just say they weren't exactly winning, you know, design awards, (laughs) you know, you got this sense. It was very DIY sensibility to that magazine. And of course I was then reading a lot of fanzines um, at the time back then. Uh, that was the only way you got your information. And I was a real punk rock kid. And um, you know, I would wait every month for the, you know, new issue of Flipside or maximum rock and roll or whatever the fanzine was at the time. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, at a very young age, it was the one thing that I always knew I wanted to do. And eventually, um, you know, in my, I guess, I guess by the time I hit about 30, I was able to launch a magazine called Harp and I ran that for almost 10 years. Um, and it was, it was a real, um, success story and, and we did very well. And, and, um, it was kind of the alternative to spin. It was like the, it, so cream was the anti rolling stone. Well, I was the, I, saw myself as the anti-spin or anti-rolling stone so right 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 yeah no and, it's cool. uh, but but made a point of of uh recruiting many of the writers that i read as a kid in fact jan huelski who appears in the film um and is one of the producers on the film uh was was the senior editor at cream and she became my senior editor when i was doing harp so right. there's a lot of like you know i um there's just a lot of, of, of things there that I that I knew about for years. I you know she would tell me stories and other writers would tell me stories and you know and I just in the back of my mind just thought God this would make such a great book, um, and then you know started making films and went no 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 this needs to be a film. <laughs> just so you know a little bit of my history too, uh, for years when I first started doing photography I used to live back in Boston so I was East Coast. And um, I got started uh, shooting um, covers for uh, Boston Phoenix. And so for, oh, right. for years, I did all the Boston Phoenix stuff. And it was always interesting because that rag was like a very sort of alternative. It always seemed yeah. like on the fringe, which was fun. And the, uh, the editor over there would allow me to do some really fun, high concept, really crazy uh, covers. So it was, it was a blast. There wasn't a ton of money in it, but it was always really fun and creative. And it was interesting to see, um, honestly, to see such a great magazine and, and heartbreaking to see it, uh, the demise of it and the demise of print with that sort of thing. And so I, I just, I'd love to talk a bit more about it because I feel like a lot of the listeners just don't know what it is, <laughs> don't know what that world is. Um, and for, for you, like, so you decide you want to start a magazine. Like, how? Do, what is the starting steps for you when you did that? Yeah. Um, what year did uh, – just backtrack for a second. What year did uh, Boston Phoenix go under? What year did they go under, man? Oh, God. It seems like time travel. I don't know if it was, like, 2012. I always joke that, like, 2008 was the year magazines died. Yeah. Literally, like, it was like I, mine went under, Vibe went under. Um, this other magazine tracks went under, uh, spin was like on the verge of going under, uh, another magazine called no depression went under. I, I, I yeah, it was just crazy. Anyway. Um, yeah, I was doing like a freelance art uh, magazine art direction, mm -hmm. uh, before I started, um, the magazine and, you know, it had done okay at it. And so I just kind of socked away some money and, had worked at enough magazines and kind of had my, you know, and made a point of, of um, being as much involved in the various parts of the magazine as I could, whether that was the, you know, the way subscriptions worked, the way the marketing worked, uh, the way the layout, you know, every aspect, I just tried to, you know, soak it all in. Mm. And so, uh, when it came time when I thought, okay, I've got enough here and I've got a concept because, you know, you always got to do when you're starting a magazine, 
you've got to be able to like figure out what your niche is because there's a million goddamn magazines out there. Yeah. And if you don't fill a niche, forget about it. I mean, magazines have a, I don't know what the exact, I, I, I used to know it's something like a 15% survival rate. If, if you're still around after the first three years, your chances are really good at success. Huh. Huh, that's, but, that's but, funny. but you've got three years to make it and most don't make it through the first year. So I really focused on what I wanted it to be editorially. And I, uh, you know, just did a lot of homework and, 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 and talked to a lot of magazine professionals and, uh, and that, and then I just launched it. Uh, I launched it myself. I launched it out of my basement. And then, um, within about three issues, another magazine came along and, uh, and bought it. Um, and I became a minority partner so uh, and started working out of their offices. And, and that's how I uh, continued to run the magazine for the next seven years. That's crazy, man. And yeah. when you think about it, too, well, so most people don't understand why magazines went under. And it's essentially like the Internet kind of really fucking destroyed that for everybody. Where the goddamn internet, that's what it was. The goddamn internet seems to be destroying so many <laughs> yeah. industries. Um, but at the at the end of the day, like uh, magazines would only be able to stay open with based upon either subscriptions or advertising, correct? And that was that was how you guys would make your money. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, the advertising is really where you make it. The subscription, I mean, the newsstand is it's a very was. I don't know if it's still. I. I who knows what it is now? I don't even look at newsstands anymore. It's too depressing. But <laughs> they were, you know, very competitive place. And so you were always looking, you know, you'd always get that report at the end of every issue when they when you started to get returns and you'd see what your, you know, your sales rate was. And, you know, again, if you were above 40%, that meant, hey, you had a hell of an issue. You, you, you know, you were, that was a successful issue. So think about that. So you, you send a distributor 20,000 copies mm -hmm. and sell 40%. <laughs> so the rest go and get ground up into a recycling machine someplace. Jesus. And that's a success. So, yeah, it's um, – so you really make your money off of, uh, of the print advertising. And once the internet um, took off, it was like – well, why are we going to, why are we print advertising? Why are we doing this? We should be spending our money. And everyone was still trying to figure it out. So it was kind of like, do we spend money on magazines? Do we spend it online? Like what, you know, like, right. so there's still a lot of confusion. And I think a lot of people still kind of just trying to figure it all out. And, um, and I, I think that's really what led to, to, to so many of the, of the magazines just folding, you know? Yeah. 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 And there's a part of me too, that, that kind of misses that because there's this level, I mean, sure, some of it may be nostalgia, but also there's this level of, uh, of fact checking of like legitimacy. The yeah. fact that you're going to actually spend money to print it on a piece of paper means that you have to go through the process of making sure that what you're printing is true or what you're printing you stand behind. And yeah. you always felt like going through specific editors meant that what is being told to you has been checked to a certain extent. And, and yes, there, you know, there are publications out there that would 
print false things or be doing things under, you know, like payola or whatever. But you just sort of hit a point where as now anybody can just sign up for a fucking website and then, and write some bullshit article on whatever the hell they think it is. And it'll get posted on Facebook and suddenly it's, it's known as real. And it's fact. Yeah, it's fact. I I think you're right. I think that's a really good point. And I think that there were magazines. I'd like to think I was one of them, but there were magazines where you knew you knew if you read it here that this had been thoroughly vetted and thoroughly been fact checked, yeah. and there was a a pride in in telling the truth and making sure that you know your facts were were, were correct. And um, uh, and I don't, I you know, I'm not trying to sound like you know an old fogey, but I mean, it's just now anybody can just say whatever the fuck they want, and yeah. it suddenly whether it's true or not, it, it you know it. Um, you know, it takes over the internet and it's, you know, in, in 30 seconds and suddenly it's, it's, it's fact. And, um, so I think that there are some websites out there that I think still have that. I think pitchfork probably, you know, probably mm-hmm. has that, mm-hmm. uh, respectability. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on, this is just a personal thing. I'm not big on scoring. You know, I don't think it, music should be rated on a one to 10 scale, but that's just me. That's a whole other podcast but <laughs> but uh but i think they do it you know i think they do a good job and I, you know i think i think people know that if they're reading it there chances are whether they like what they're reading or not chances are you know it was edited well and it was written well and um and there's a a, a respectability there i think well, it just seems from the outside, it seems like it was it was pretty much always a struggle to stay legitimate when you're dealing with such a large company like the music industry, and with um, with like Cream Magazine and with these smaller magazines, independent rags. It just seems like you're getting honesty. You're you're getting the exactly. op- opinion of people who know something about music, to the same the same way that if I went to a record store and I'd go into a record store and the person working at the counter would scoff at what album I was buying and go, "You really, really want to buy this fucking album? You have no idea, man." And and I miss that. There was a sense of respect and a sense of discovery and a sense of understanding, especially when you're talking to people that surround themselves and embed themselves in the music world and they understand to a certain extent, the kind of shit that's going on behind the scenes and the kind of shit that's being sold to you. Um, I, yeah. I, I think you really nailed it. And I think the other part of the puzzle there is the sense of community. Because when you're going to a record store, for example, and the guy behind the counter is going, you don't want to buy this piece of shit. What you want to buy is this. Check this out. Yeah. Right? And then all of a sudden you've got a conversation going on, right? You've got people going. And then you, and then all of a sudden another guy, well, you know, that's in line behind you starts going, oh, no, you got to check this thing out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it, was a, it was a community. And, and, and people were talking and people were, like, arguing. And, and that was the same thing that you found in the pages of Cream. And it was uh, – you know, the same kind of thing where it was just like a bunch of writers that loved the music so much that they, to them, it was worth fighting over. And, uh, and, and then the same thing goes to, you know, your, your record store clerk, who, you know, the annoying, like, you know, patronizing <laughs> record store clerk that would be like, whatever, dude, you're buying like, this thing's a piece of shit. But like, you know, you'd like to think that that came from a place of like, you know, loving music and caring enough to 
to uh, have an opinion about it. And, uh, and I do miss that. I, I, you know, there, I, I, there's a great record store here that where I feel that, you know, but yeah. I, I, I worked in record stores years ago when I was a kid and I missed that. I missed that, that, um, that communal thing of like when a customer walks through the door and they go, Hey, what's good. What should I buy today? And you go, Oh, you got to check this thing out. And yeah. Play it well, you know? well, dude, I was that kid too. Cause I, I spent, I think it was like 18 to 20 uh, working as uh, ended up working myself up to management in a record store. So I worked in a record dude, store. Me too. Dude. We're the same people. Dude, yeah, the same thing. I, I loved it. I remember going in. So I went into a record store when I was younger and I think it was like 16. And I went into, I, I wanted a job at Newberry Comics, but getting a job wow. at, getting a job at Newberry Comics was like somehow be, being part of the cool kid club. And so- sure. Uh, I, I went in and I applied to that and then I went to strawberries, which was like more of a chain and I walked mm -hmm. in and I talked to the manager and I was like 16 and I was like, I'd love to work here. And he goes, well, you're too young. You can't come here to work now. And he's like, yeah. but you know, come back when you're, you know, 17 and right. uh, maybe we'll have this conversation. And I remember getting that job, going in there and just being so awestruck and all of the, this was years before the music industry started to shift. Right. And so all the managers were rock stars. You were always dealing with the A and R guys yeah. that would be coming in, and they'd be talking about new albums. You get free concert oh. tickets. Um, oh, those were the days. I, oh. Man, I swear to God, we have a very similar story. I was a kid that went to this one record store starting when I was around fourteen, mm -hmm. and I went there probably every every weekend, if not every other weekend. And uh, you know, I'd beg my father to take me, and he'd take me begrudgingly. <laughs> And I would, and I, but I'd buy something every week. I knew I always knew what I wanted, and I go in there and I buy it and I leave. I did that for years and years. Finally, one day I said, um, I asked the owner. It was it was a head shop slash record store, but it was a really cool record store, like cool you know, indie rock. But they also sold pipes and stuff, mm -hmm. which I was so naive. I didn't even know that what those were. I I thought they were just like <laughs> I didn't even know. But anyway. Um, I said, uh, "Hey, man, you got? Are you guys hiring?" He goes, "You want a job?" And I go, "God, I'd I'd love one." He goes, "All right, you're hired." And I worked there for the next four years. And he only hired me because I was this little kid that had been coming there for four years. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I, I just, uh, yeah, it was those were great, great, great years. Well, dude, and then from it kind of opened my eyes because prior to that, like you know, listening to albums and, and rock and roll and, and and music, it was like somehow this came from the gods. Somehow, mm -hmm. as a young kid, you're like, I don't know how it got put onto this album or on this cassette mm -hmm. tape, but fucking, it's the sound of the gods. And then when I started working in there, I started to get a glimpse of how the business worked and what the inside of the business was, and I started to see the shift in the business. And it, it when I first started working there, uh, we were allowed to play what we liked. So you'd go right. into the record store and you'd play whatever you loved or whatever you listened to. And there were, you would get hired essentially based upon your taste. So you'd, right. you'd, you'd have like the, the, the nerd that was the classical guy and he'd be upstairs <laughs> and he'd, anytime someone would come in and they'd have a specific call for like yeah. uh, this composition of this. And I'm like, just go upstairs. Like go talk to Abe. I have no I knew, fucking I idea. guy just like that. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And so we were in there and it was a lot of fun in the beginning. And then I think the store changed hands or it started to become more corporate. And then next thing you know, 
they're showing up with playlist tapes. And so we'd have to play, we had a selection of like three or four tapes that we'd play every month. And and those songs just would fucking, they, I still go to sleep and have dreams about these songs that were, <laughs> that were pounded into my skull. Um, and then you start to understand the business a bit more and you start to sit there and go like, okay, so as I'm putting CDs out for Tuesday's release, I'm filling up the top 40 fucking wheel and I'm filling it up and the first position is Madonna. And I'm like, how is this a top selling album when it isn't even fucking out yet? It's yep. not even on the fucking market yet and it's number one. What's going on here? You know what I mean? And yeah. so you were always looking for some sort of legitimacy. And at that point you were digging deep into either word of mouth or into independent magazines and looking for, for, and that's what I got out of Boston, at least the Boston Phoenix, because they had a really good music section and, and they were kind of no bullshit. And it seems like yeah. you were doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, it's, um, you know, I was lucky enough to work in a record store where, and I, I still think about this a lot, actually. Um, never really told the story, but to me, it meant a lot. It might not mean anything to anybody else. But when I worked at this record store, it used to drive me at first, it used to drive me crazy because the way the record store was laid out, there were no genres. Okay. <laughs> it was strictly alphabetical. Oh, wow. All right. So you had some people, you know, have customers going in, well, where's Led Zeppelin? It's under L. What shouldn't it be under Z? No, it's not a, per it's a band's name. It's not a person's name. You know, so you'd have these like morons that just wouldn't get it or whatever, right? Like uh -huh. Molly Hatchet. Well, should, that's a person's name. Shouldn't that be under H? No, it's Molly Hatchet. It's the, anyway, <laughs> you get the point. Yeah. But, but, but what I realized is it was actually really brilliant because I learned to see and hear music in a way kind of like with Cream where the genres kind of went away a little bit and you listen to the music based on what the music was. It wasn't about, oh, I can't listen to that because it's not punk or I can't listen to that because it's this or that. It's like, no, it's about what is it that you're hearing does it resonate with you or does it not? Yeah, yeah. Does yeah. that make sense? T dude, totally, totally. And so I think he was actually a really brilliant move. It drove me crazy. But by the end of it, I was like sold on his like weird ass method of setting up the stuff. And, and he was ultimately, um, you know, other than a few frustrated customers, I, I think he was – you know, I, I, I think he did a great job and it, and it helped me learn to not pigeonhole music in a way um, that I think, uh, you know, I might have done otherwise because I, as a kid, you tend to be, or at least I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for me, I tended to live in a very black and white kind of like, well, no, this is punk, this mm -hmm. is metal, mm -hmm. this is that, this is that. And there wasn't a whole lot of like, well, if it's punk, if it's metal, I can't listen to that because I'm not supposed to like metal because well, I'm punk. Dude, it's a huge, that's a huge, a huge issue that I always have with the music industry. And at, that, at that point, you're like, okay, look, so you're just making uh, genres of music. You're just, you're creating these subgenres to help sell CDs or sell right. albums. That's essentially it. So like, if you like Metallica, you'll love Megadeth. You know what I mean? It's like- right packaging them in so that you can sell more units, which makes sense. 
But then you have teenagers, like young folks like me and you, who uh, are incredibly inspired by a band, right? Yeah. And so then you start reading on that band and it's like, well, we come from this and these are the bands that influence us. And we're like, oh, cool, punk rock or whatever it is, metal, whatever you're into. I was more of a metal kid. And so you're into that. And then suddenly, because the idols that are making you feel something are inspired by that then you're then inspired by that and you want to be a part of their fucking fan club or you want to be a part of their group and so you're gonna indoctrinate yourself with all their shit that they have which is great which is really cool if you're younger but then you sort of hit a point with me it wasn't until i started doing music videos and so i started doing stuff for like hardcore bands like um uh, sick of it all and agnostic front and oh nice and so you're working with these bands and these iconic bands from that genre who are now which is fascinating by the way oh i bet dealing with guys that set their tone when they were teenagers and they're now in their 60s trying to still live that world <laughs> just i know right yeah agnostic front those guys what is Vinny? Vinny? What is stigma? What's he like? Sixty something, dude. Yeah, and he's he's insane. He's got like an ass. He's got a ton of energy. Uh, my my old business partner from our company. He just did that doc. Uh, Godfather's a hardcore on those guys. So, oh, that's a great doc. Yeah, he did a killer job on that. And he did. He so did. I got to hang out with these guys. But as you're working with them, especially as a creative, bringing something to them as a as a director, you would I would always come in with ideas, and they're like, "That's not punk rock." It's like, oh, oh and it's like, can can we, uh, for metal guys, like, how about we change the shirts, fellas? Everybody's wearing fucking black shirts and everything. How about, exactly. how about like we logos that you can't comprehend because they're so fucking like, uh, <laughs> like some weird gothic lettering that you don't know. Yeah, dude. It, it, I remember, I think I might have talked about it on the show before, but I did a video for Fear Factory and uh, mm-hmm. in the pitch for them. I was like, we got to do colors. I want to do like blues and greens and yellows. And the guy, I think the guitarist was like, that's not fucking metal. And this was right around the time that like Fight Club had come out. He's like, it needs to have like swinging fucking fluorescent lights and shit. I'm like, I'm like, no, it is metal because you say it's metal. So let's do something different here because you say it is. But my point is that the genres as cool as they are to find new music and to sort of get deep into it the genres themselves were very restrictive and i think yes. creatively yeah. restrictive and then the yeah. the bands that stand out you know are the ones that sort of break the rules of that genre and create their own new genre or subject agreed i think you just nailed it I hope you guys are loving the show as much as I am. I've got a couple ad reads and you know the deal. It's the time. It's the time to give the thanks to the men and women that help support the show. First up, my good buddies over at Puget Systems. Now, if you're a music producer, if you're someone that is a photographer, graphic designer, and you're in the market for a brand new computer, right? Your machine is giving you that pinwheel of death and you really can't uh, stand to sit around and wait for it to fucking render drives me insane. Do me a favor, check out Puget Systems. Now I've done the hard work for you guys. I found a computer company, a PC computer company, and I know you're going, oh my God, PC? Yes, PCs are great, and here's why. With a PC, you could better manage the money you're spending. So you could be hyper-focused on hardware, and very specific on the hardware you need for the program that you use, because believe it or not, When you buy a machine that blankets everything, 
their sacrifice is being made. So if you want a really good Photoshop machine, you should build yourself a really great Photoshop machine. And guess what? It's going to be a lot fucking cheaper than the brand new Macs are. And then with that money that you're saving on that machine, you can then put that into a great monitor. Maybe you get yourself a calibrated Lacey monitor. Maybe you get yourself a really nice retina scan, a retina fucking display. Retina scan. What a, what a fucking dumbass. Uh, but... I love it, man. Puget Systems makes fantastic PCs for someone that wants a computer, open it up, take it out of the box, set it up and ready to go with fantastic customer support. You actually talk to people on the phone when you call these guys. So do yourself a favor, go on over to pugetsystems.com there. You can pick a system based upon the software you're using. They offer a baseline system that you can then customize and they love to talk to their customers. So you can tell them how much money you wanna spend, what it is that you need to build, and they'll fucking hook it up. And if you're not from the US, because these guys only ship in the US, and I know there's a lot of people from London listening to the show, Germany listening to the show, uh, New Zealand, Australia. If you're out of the country, but you want a Puget system, they offer up a brand new consultation deal where you can talk to them. I think it's like a $500 fee, which is cheap. And then they'll talk you through the hardware and give you the specs that you need to literally build your own Puget system. It's pretty cool stuff. Even if you're just building your own computer and you need some info, it's a perfect place to go. Head on over to PugetSystems.com and say hi to the guys for me. Also up, our good pals over at Quasar Science, one of the best advancements in uh, lighting and in cinema has been through LED lighting and also like stage performances and concerts. Fucking LED lighting has changed the way that we look at entertainment, period, right? Not only does it require less power, not only does it put out as much heat so that your sets aren't fucking 100 degrees, um, but you can dial in any color in the rainbow with rainbow LEDs. You can have balanced, perfectly balanced, bicolor fucking LEDs. Uh, it changes everything. And the power thing's a big deal because you don't need as many crew guys. You don't need to rent a generator. You can actually run these things off of battery power and they take up a very small footprint. So they're easy to transport. I have people ask me all the time, what kind of lighting gear do you have in your kit? I have a bunch of different units, but I have a lot of stuff from Quasar Science. Go to quasarscience.com and check it all out. Also, I'm gonna give some plugs on this episode to some of my favorite fucking um, album manufacturers right now. And I'm a huge fan of waxwork stuff. And I talk about it, I think later in the episode, hold on. I'm gonna try to get them as a sponsor. So if you're listening waxworks, this is a free read for you, but I think you should be on the show. Go check them out. It's waxworkrecords.com. They put out really great vinyls for a lot of amazing soundtracks and scores that I love, that I absolutely love. I talk about the Manhunter of Michael Mann score, fucking phenomenal. I think they also did a Thing reprint that I couldn't get my hands on because it was limited edition. Super fucking cool. And uh, we also talk about Record Day, Record Store Day, that is Saturday. So the 29th is Record Store Day, which will probably be after the show comes out. But dude, I'm telling you, I have listening to vinyls again. It is bringing so much more joy to my music listening experience. I'm grabbing random shit 
going to the record store and actually grabbing like Hawaiian music, fucking uh, flamingo guitar music, uh, really cool shit. So if you're feeling a little bored, if you're feeling stale, and this isn't hipster Mike talking, this is just music Mike talking, go get yourself a record player and grab yourself some vinyls. And you've heard me talk to George. Go back and listen to the episode that I do with um, 7L from Czarface. I forget the number, but we'll put the link below. I'll make sure Liam does. Go back and listen to that. I actually record that episode in his record shop, Vinyl Index, which is in Somerville. So if you're in Massachusetts, if you're in Boston, I think they're letting you out now from COVID. Head on over there. Check them out. Go support your local record store. And why? Because you can actually go in there, listen to new music, and flip through albums and put it on. That's it, man. That's not a real read. I'm not getting paid for that. I just wanted to show some love to what it is that I like with any of these guys. I do so. And if you're a newcomer to the show, if you came on over because you're like, fuck, I love this music stuff. But what does he do? Does he do a filmmaking podcast? I do a bit of everything at this point. And the best way to listen to the show is head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've curated episodes because we're pushing on 100 episodes at this point. We're getting there, guys. It's going to be cool. Um, but there, if you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, I've curated the episodes based upon subject material. So if you just want to listen to the music stuff, I interviewed Jesse Leach from Kill Switch Engage. I talked to George from Czarface, Dream Theater, bunch of really great musicians head on over to in love with the process.com and check it all out all right that's it without further ado let's get back into the show when you look at bands like say i don't know the first uh, first band I, i'm looking at the shirt i'm wearing right now and it's a witch taint t-shirt um <laughs> but anyway um, I think uh, the bands that kind of broke free of that were um, the first band. Uh, there's dozens, but Fugazi comes to mind because Fugazi, mm-hmm. when they first started off, I think everyone had this expectation that they were like, you know, another minor threat or another, you know, just another hardcore band. And they, exp- I mean, they became super experimental and broke just about every rule you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think probably alienated a lot of people in the process, um, you know, musically speaking. But uh, same with Sonic Youth. I mean, you know, these bands, you know, they, they really branched. Uh, Wilco is another band. Yeah. Um, really branched out and became something entirely their own. And um, you got to respect them for that. Whether you like what they did or not, you got you to gotta respect them. And I can imagine from um, a band's perspective that – and I'm not slighting bands like Agnostic Front by any means. Sure. But I, I, I would – me personally um, would get bored yeah. uh, after playing the same style after 30, 40 years. So to me, it's, it's about you know, not necessarily reinvention but just trying to try something new and hope that your audience comes along with you. And, and getting rid of these uh, – getting rid of these um, – you know, these, these – just not being pigeonholed and being told what it is that you are or you're not. You're just playing music and let the people decide if they like it or not. Yeah. I mean, it almost becomes shackles at that point because a lot Mm -hmm. of these guys you see, 
uh, sort of stuck in that scene. And if you and and the fans of that scene are so incredibly specific, and yeah. they're just like, well, this is what we've been told. These are the rules, and this is how the rules play, and this is what happens. And I think if you're deep enough in that world, trying to break out of that is very scary. Because I can't imagine. Yeah, I mean, do you remember? I don't know if you remember or not, but there was a period where in the '80s. Where you had these hardcore bands like uh, GYS and mm-hmm. SSD Control, Gangrene, mm-hmm. a lot of Boston bands actually, and they tried to break out of the three chord hardcore thing, and they became like metal bands. <laughs> and uh, and and actually, Discharge was another band that did that, and like failed miserably. Yeah. Um, and you know, so you know, that's just another example of like you know. It's hard. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't want to be in that position. I, I don't know how you, you do that. And I think it takes a special type of audience or fan to really want to come along on the ride with you. I'm not, you know, I look, I'm the first to admit that there's plenty of bands that I've liked along the lines or, or, along, you know, through the years that have kind of changed their sound. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm not really on board with that. And I just kind of move on and yeah, and that's okay too, you know? Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's a crazy thing. And I guess the reason I bring it up, because it comes back down to, well, I mean, I've talked about this with other musicians on the show. I think the, the most irritating thing in the world to me right now are algorithms. I think algorithms just fucking suck. Mm. And I think the process of having like a program that goes through and says, well, if you like this waveform, then we've compared it to all the shapes of these other waveforms. And then you're going to like these ones as well. And especially with uh, Spotify, you get lost in that. Oh, yeah, for sure. You get a playlist and you're just like, who am I even listening to? And what the fuck is this sound? And it all sounds the fucking same. And then it becomes sort of this mud sort of trudge mid-tone. Agreed. And then you kind of go down this weird rabbit hole of like trying to find something you like because you're supposed to like it. Because according to their algorithm, you're supposed to like it. And it's like everything sucks. So... I'm still really weird about that. I, I, I don't, I'm not big on playlists and stuff. Like I'm very, I'm still kind of, uh, my friends bust on me all the time, but I, I, I'm much more, I'd much rather not listen to what someone else, <coughs> although this is kind of contrary to what I was saying before about record stores, but I'd rather discover stuff on my own and listen to it in my own way than to have someone who's, I don't know, a computer telling me, Oh no, you should definitely like this because it's based on the last thing you listen to. Yeah, yeah. And I I'd go even further with that and say I'd rather have someone show up to my place or be at a bar or be in a spot and go, what is this? Or have someone go in and go, I just listened to this fucking thing. It's it's amazing. I love this thing. Let me play it for you. That's different because then you're having a shared emotion, you're having a shared experience. And you, again, it's communal. Exactly. 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 And you kind of got that with the old magazines where you felt like you started to know who the writers were. You started mm-hmm. to understand their voice. They became someone that you can weekly or monthly or whatever the, the release of it was. Uh, trust. Trust and rely on. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And I think, you know, uh, and I think, you know, coming back to Cream, I think uh, there were so many people on that masthead where I think I know for me when I was a kid, I would just seek out those writers. I would ignore other writers. If I knew, you know, for example, Lester Bangs or somebody, I would go, okay, uh, okay, oh, he wrote this. I'm going to read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, you just got to that point because you either trusted what he said 
or what he was going to say was so outrageous and fucking <laughs> just off the wall that you knew you were going to enjoy it or be pissed off at it or something. And, um, and that's what I loved about that magazine. I, I can't say that about any other magazine, honestly. I mean, other than, um, uh, you know, perhaps Rolling Stone, but that's for a different reason where you read it and you just go, yeah, you know, the, really, you just gave five stars to the new Boss yeah. Gags album? Yeah, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Dude, exactly. Look, I used to like uh, the photography in Rolling Stone. I, there were elements of Rolling yeah, Stone that I really loved, but then I never turned to them for, for album advice. Mm-mm. I never Mm-mm. did because I was just like, who paid you for that one? You know, I always felt that way with those guys. Well, you know, um, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but it's well documented. Um, you know, Jan Winter. There are a number of writers, I, I won't name names, but a number of writers have been fired from Rolling Stone um, for, you know, uh, rating an album that they've reviewed. Let's just say they um, rated an album. It's a, let's just say it's, uh, let me make up a record. Uh, the new Blind Melon. Okay, there's only one Blind Melon. All right. Uh, <laughs> Returned uh, from the uh, dead. Yeah. Counting Crows record. Okay. Yeah. And the writer decided, okay, I'm going to give this three stars. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, Pretty well known fact that uh, Jan Wenner, who's the publisher, uh, is is was known and is still known to, and I hope I don't get sued for this, but um, changing the three stars to the five stars if he thinks either a he's friends with a band or b they placed an ad in the magazine. Huh. <laughs> you weren't going to get that with Cream, okay? Cream could destroy an album, and there'd be a full page ad for that album in the same issue. And I'm not saying that they that that publisher didn't get shit because I'm sure he did. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> but he didn't give a fuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's church and fucking state. You know, it's like, well, just because you're giving me money doesn't mean that I'm beholden. It doesn't mean that I can't be honest and share what it is that I feel about this particular record. Two different things. One is advertising. One is editorial. Yep. Yep. No, totally, dude. Totally. I'm getting getting all fired up. I got to calm down. Dude, it's good. (laughs) People don't get fired up enough about music right now. And a dangerous statement here. I feel like music has become the just such a fucking background thing. It's just become background noise that just doesn't seem at the foreground. And look, I know there's a lot of really great acts out there and there are a lot of new musicians that I listen to that are amazing. And I know that without uh, the ability for musicians to have uh, online audiences and all that stuff, they wouldn't be heard. But I also fucking know that, uh, you know, people who run like Spotify, you know, fucking Silicon Valley assholes that run Spotify that don't pay the artist. What was was the quote that the... uh, the CEO of Spotify said recently where he's like, musicians oh, need to what keep... What was that? It was like, musicians... I'm going to completely misquote him. Uh, but, yeah, it, too, but it was awful, whatever it was. It was awful. It was like, musicians... Uh, to think that you can make an album every four years and survive on that album every four years is ridiculous right now. Musicians need to be like releasing music every fucking day. Yeah, okay. Meanwhile, you'll be paying them 0.3%. Uh, I'm sorry, 0.3 cents. Yeah. Not even a penny yeah. for uh, a million fucking plays. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I feel for the, I feel for artists right now because, you know, you don't make money off record sales. You make money off touring. 
Yep. And, um, and that's just obviously not happening right now. So, uh, I love, you know, some of what's happening, uh, you know, some of the, um, you know, so many artists now are, are, are really doing creative things online and, and finding ways to, to monetize it. And, and I think that that's great, but, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, um, it's a shitty time to be a fucking musician. It, it really is. <laughs> it is I mean, I, it used to bother me. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, it used to bother me. I, I, it, I, I'll never forget. It was a Toyota commercial. Uh huh. And I believe it was during the Super Bowl, and I was watching it, and all of a sudden it was a Toyota commercial, and the Buzzcocks came on <laughs> um, as part of the Toyota commercial. Uh-huh. And I was so pissed off. And then I went, wait a second. These guys have been around since 1976. They'd fucking deserve every dime. Like, my opinion completely changed. If you had asked me sure. that when I was 16, I would have been like, oh, fucking sellouts. No. These guys deserve every, you know, and plenty of people disagree with me. Those guys deserve every dime they get from that thing, from from that commercial spot. And because now you've got, and the reason it's happening is because you've got the people that are in positions of power, the people that are in in these decision-making um, uh, positions mm-hmm. are people that are our age or a little younger mm-hmm. and grew up with this stuff. And they're like, oh, I got this great song. We got to put this song. It's this band called the Buzzcocks. It's going to be great. We're going to put it on this Toyota fucking Camry commercial. And it's going to be. And so it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, that's just evolution. That's just how it works. And now those people are in places of power and can do that. And, and I'm thankful that, that, that those bands are, are, are getting paid. I wish it happened more. Um, I mean, it's a little weird to hear one of my favorite songs you know, by a band that changed my life during a Camry commercial, but more power to them, you know? (laughs) Well, it's a good outlook on it, man, because the truth of the matter is, is that with today, most people, most people are hearing that shit. If they're watching like uh, girls on HBO or if they're watching something and they hear a track that runs at the end, I mean, hell, like I just saw uh, with the whole big DC event that happened like last weekend, I just saw the new Zack Snyder trailer and and he was playing uh, the Leonard Cohen song for Hallelujah. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I was just like, what the fuck is this track? I remember hearing this track. And so it really sort of made me dig deep and go through all this fucking discography again. Right. So there yeah. is a benefit to that. That's not the was, issue. The, the- that's right. I was going to say, that's the other byproduct is that, you know, people then go, wait, what is this? They either, re- if they love it, then hey, that's more record sales, and with especially in the case of Leonard Cohen, where you know that that song just keeps that's just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, know? dude, dude, yeah. and 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 so I think that the issue, if you had talked to like young me in the '90s, then maybe I'd be bitching about that. But I think the the, the modern issue now is that uh, bands are starving to death. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so. It's like how if we're not buying their CDs, because no, once Napster came out, we're all like, hey, we could steal shit and get away with it. You know, then yeah. that was yeah. a thing. Um, and then the record labels were always like, well, we're going to fucking steal shit from you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so these guys that are and these women that are writing these songs and, and trying to come up with new ideas and trying to come up with really solid material in 
it's difficult. It's hard to write something inspired. It's hard to write something that feels new and fresh. And if if you're listening to an artist put together their work, or even if you're listening to like an in-between album, like a middle album where you're like, that was a fucking forgettable album. It's right. because they're desperately trying to find their new sound and they're desperately trying to find something that's new and inspiring. And so for the head of fucking Spotify to be like, you guys need to be putting music out every day. It's just going to be a sea full of shit. It's going to yep. be so much like uninspired shit. And you don't yep. give a fuck as long as your logo's running in front of it. Yeah, exactly. And you're not going to make a goddamn dime from it anyway. So what's the, I mean, not that it should be all about that. I'm just saying like, you know what? So you're going to be, you know, pressured by this fucking CEO to make more music when, you know, music, you, you don't just crap out music. I mean, you, music takes time. Yeah. Music takes you know, inspiration. Music takes a lot of things, and it just clearly shows that the guy, the guy's an idiot, and um, <laughs> and you know doesn't understand music. And and you can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but, true. I support you on that one, brother. It's yeah. true. Well, let's get back into into your film here. So you started. Uh, doing the magazine stuff. And when did you make transition? When did you make the transition into deciding that you wanted to do film now? Cause that's a big jump. Right. Right. Well, um, so the magazine, I, I came into work one day. I'll keep it short. Sure. I came into work one day. Um, you know, remember I, I, I was the minority partner. I, I, I owned a hundred percent and then sold 75% of the magazine. We were doing well. Everything was great. I already had the mag, the next issue all laid out. It was ready to go. Mm -hmm. Came into work and was told, uh, uh, "Yeah, we uh, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, magazine's done." Um, so I uh, that didn't go over too well with me, um, and uh, and so uh, I went through some legal maneuvers and um, and decided, you know, just to move on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, have not spoken to any of them since don't ever plan to. Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, um, so I, I continued to work as a, as a freelance art director for a number of years for a number of different magazines, um, consumer magazines, B2B magazines. Um, and that's just what I did and, you know, doing photo shoots and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and then I just said, you know what, um, it, you know, it just wasn't a good time for me. I, I, psychologically, it wasn't good for me. There was a lot of just, yeah, life, life wasn't great. And I said, you know what, I got to make a decision here. I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to make a change. And so I had grown up in the, uh, in the punk rock scene mm -hmm. in DC as a kid. And that was always a story. Again, I, I mentioned how cream would have made a great book. Well, I always thought, well, you know, this would make a great book because um, I experienced it. I really came of age uh, in DC and going to shows uh, starting at the age of 12 <laughs> uh, and, you know, continued all, all the way through. I mean, I never stopped. So, um, and then later joined a band and, you know, whatever. Um, I was in two bands Mm -hmm. And so I saw a lot of things firsthand. I knew a lot of firsthand stories, a lot of uh, – I, I was witness to a lot of things that I felt like maybe other people had not seen or were not aware of. And the DC scene in particular, 
especially in that decade, um, you know, there's a lot of um, curiosity about that period of time because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the bands that came out of DC at that point, but you know, you're talking about the Bad Brains, you're talking about Minor right, Threat, right, 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 right. Yes, yeah, 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 totally. You know, you're talking about uh, Fugazi. You're talking about, um, you know, I'm missing a ton of them. Uh, Marginal Man, Government Issues, Scream, uh, which was Dave Grohl's first band. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so plenty. You know, it was it. It really had a very specific sound and a very specific um, reputation, mm-hmm. and that was unlike any any other scene in the in the um, in the country. And part of that, which is what I wanted to explore in the story, was like because the the backdrop was the seat of government the backdrop was the white house so how so of course <laughs> things are going to be different because you're talking about members of bands whose parents are senators lawyers lobbyists crazy um, yeah. very important people um and they're sitting around the dinner table you know every night talking about politics how can that not play a part in how these were really smart kids, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so to me, it was more interesting than your average, like, again, not to diminish um, any other scene sure, documentary, but more interesting than like, you know, what was going on in Albuquerque, right. uh, their Albuquerque hardcore scene in the 1980s. Forgive me. I'm sure there were some great bands, <laughs> but, but I, you know, these were bands that were, changing people's lives. These were bands that were uh, unlike anybody else at the time and went on to make quite a name for themselves um, and continue to with every new decade. You know, I mean, the curiosity and the uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, mythology grows. Sure. So uh, I decided, all right, well, I'm going to write a book. And then, I, and then halfway through writing kind of a treatment, I went, you know what? Writing a book is does does a real disservice here because you don't get to hear the music, and the music is is really what's you know one of the best things about this scene. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I reached out to my good friend Jim Saw, um, who I'd known since I was twelve, and um, and was a photographer. And basically, any photo you've seen, black and white photo that you've seen of like minor threat or the faith or, or, uh, Fugazi. In fact, he did the Fugazi repeater album. That's his photo. Cool. So, you know, he was really, he was there in the thick of it. And I reached out to him. I said, Hey, I want to do, let's do a doc. And I think he was probably like, you're fucking nuts. (laughs) But I think, you know, I approached it just like I approached doing a fanzine when I was 12 or the same way I approached doing a magazine when I was 30. It was like, I can do, like, we'll just figure out how to do, like, you know, I, it's a punk rock um, approach to things where it's a DIY thing, like where you go to school. Mm-hmm. I don't mean um, a real school. I mean, you you learn on the job and you figure it out and you know you have, an, you know, you have a sense of aesthetic you know what you want. And, and I knew all those things ahead of time. And so, uh, I just started reaching out to folks because I'd kept in touch with a lot of these folks 
since I was a kid, you know, and, um, and they knew me because I was still doing the magazine. They knew I'd never stopped making, you know, I'd never stopped documenting music. So, um, long story short, we, we finished the film in about three years Mm -hmm. and, uh, it completely exceeded my, I, I thought if we were lucky, we played in a few local theaters, but we, we played it all. I went all over the world with this film. Um, and we sold it out literally I'm not whatever, but we sold it out almost every city I ever went to, to watch, to, to see the film, uh, whether it was Argentina or London or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ireland, um, or, and, you know, we sold it out in DC 10 weeks in advance for a week straight. Um, uh, it was just, it's just, it, it was not, um, and it was well received and we got, you know, great reviews from the Hollywood reporter, the village voice, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, New York times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really my first film. So, uh, it just really exceeded my expectations and, and, and I thought, okay, well now it's time to do another one. Well, dude, and doing, you know, because we, like I said, my my old business partner did The Godfather. So doing a movie for uh, musicians, especially musicians that have a fan base is such a smart fucking move because you already have an embedded fan base. And if the musicians are standing behind the project and they endorse the project, then you're in good shape. And then you really, it's all about just being honest and being legitimate with how you, with how you create that doc. And as long as you can pull that off, then you'll have pretty good success i mean like it's it's uh it's a good formula it's a great way to fucking start in filmmaking because it's you you i mean there's a fear that you have to you know make sure that the fans are going to like it there's a fear that you're telling the story the correct way and you're not fucking it up but it's also really great to know that if you do something good then those people will come out to watch the fucking thing you know no you're right and i think for me it was particularly challenging because I had lived through a lot of this stuff. And so you go, okay, I know this is the way this happened. So I, I, I got to tell the truth here. I can't fuck this up. And, you know, you also know that, that it wasn't all, um, it wasn't all, uh, you know, sunshine. Yeah, of course. Uh, there were a lot of things that weren't so great. And I wanted to talk about those things as well. And I did. And I think because it wasn't just like, kind of a hand job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, doc, um, there was plenty. Look, man, you could make 20 docs about DC and st- or New York and still not cover everything. Sure. But sure. what I tried to do midway through, cause I was kind of having a ner- like a nervous breakdown. I just went like, okay, all I can do is tell my truth and tell what I saw and what my interests were and what, what I was sort of, uh, engaged in or, or, uh, or, uh, focused on. Sure. So that's what I did. And, uh, and so I tried to tell it as honestly as I could. And, um, and, uh, luckily people, you know, there were plenty of people that, uh, thought that I should have included this or that, and that's okay. Um, but I included the stuff that, that, that meant the most to me. So, well, that's the point. You know what I mean? And we live in a culture right now, this crazy fucking cancel culture. But the point is when you get asked to do a story, if you decide to tell a story, you're telling it from a specific perspective. That's the idea. You know what I mean? As a director, that's what you do. You come in, you read it out, you read a script or you have an idea for a documentary and you do the research on that thing and you 
are coming at it from your perspective. It's being filtered through either, like you said, your personal experiences or how you see the world or what it is that you do. That's to be expected. It's the same thing as like when you, when we were talking about the writers in the magazines and we'd follow specific writers because they had a very specific perspective on these things. Exactly. And, and sure, like you can have fucking 200 people tell 200 different stories with it. You know what I mean? But it's, I prefer that. I'd rather watch someone's perspective and not agree with that perspective, but still love the fact that that was made because then at least humans are making these fucking things and some app isn't making these fucking things. You know exactly. what I mean? I, I, I'm with you 100%. And I, and I think you'll be able to, you know, I think you follow docs like I do. And I, I'm noticing this new mm -hmm. trend mm -hmm. where, um, it's a weird example, but I'm going to use the Taylor Swift documentary. <laughs> I feel like there's this new thing now where they're essentially what's being, what's happening is that the band or the artist or the label is hiring a documentary filmmaker mm -hmm. to essentially make like one big, you know, Hallmark card, you know, for the artist. Um, and what, which is fine. I'm sure that pleases lots of people. Because those stocks do quite well. Sure. But I don't look at it that way. I, I, when I think of making a documentary, I, it's just like when you saw the cream doc, there's plenty of stuff in there that, that's not so pretty. It's not so nice. And, uh, you know, and I, and to, to not include those things is A, uh, not truthful and B, revisionist bullshit. Yeah. Because, yeah. And so, um, it bums me out when I see docs where they're, it's, it's all just like, you know, you know, they're, the biggest challenge they have is like, you know, what, you know, outfit they're going to wear when they get on stage. You know, it, it's, <laughs> but, but dude, it's, it's true. It's bullshit at that point, because what you're doing is you're, you're either, you're either telling the story behind an icon that, that influenced you. And a lot of people, when they are affected by a musician or if they're affected by an artist, that person is affecting their life and transitioning Correct. their life in a specific way, right? Correct. And yep. so what you wanna know is where does that person come up with their ideas and their values and where do those values come from? Because sometimes you come to learn that you don't necessarily agree with their values and you just thought you were agreeing with the values, but it turns out that that was the marketing scheme for what this person was putting out there. And so yes. you're just like, maybe they're not as godly. Maybe I shouldn't uh, beat the shit out of the kid that doesn't wear a shirt because, because <laughs> right. they're not as godly as I thought they were. Um, right. And I'm not saying that all docs need to tear these people down because I'm not no, necessarily into that either. Uh, I think it's just about sitting there going, look, the thing I love about good documentaries is that you watch something and you go, that he's just a man. And we lived through all of the godly advertising and all of that shit. But at the end of the day, he's just a dude. And the thing that's interesting, especially when you catch up with musicians as they get older, you sit there and you go, that's, so I know him for what he made when he was 16, but this is how he's developed as a human being. And this is how living that lifestyle has changed for him or living that lifestyle has kept him on his path or living that lifestyle has adjusted to a new version of that lifestyle, which is actually relevant to me as a 40 fucking two year old now. Right. You know what I mean? So there's something really great about that. 
it, it, I can get on such a tirade about this shit. I, like, no, I, I, I'm with you. I think documentaries should show the human side. I think if they're not showing that, then I think they're doing a disservice to the people that are that are watching. Now, if if you, you know, having said that, if you're hired as a director mm-hmm. to essentially make a 90 minute feel good music video, you know, documentary slash, you know, what amounts to a music video, basically commercial, um, commercial. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Then so be it. I, I, I don't hold it against you. It's just that's not something I'm personally interested in because I I come from um, kind of a journalism – to me, there should be a uh, – you should see both sides and you should show both sides. Mm-hmm. And whether you agree with them or not, they need to be part of the story so you can decide for yourself how you – and so – you know, I know that that's that's um, you know that's a challenge, and I know it's not it's not easy to do that, and uh, and so I don't pretend to have the answers for it, but I'm just saying to me that's just something that's important to me to show something that's warts and all, and that goes back to the cream doc when I reached out, you know, to JJ Kramer, the the son of the late publisher of of, of Cream, and I said. Hey, let's do this doc. You know, I think we could, and we, we hit it off right away. And I, I kind of gave him my thumbnail of like how, what, you know, what I thought the, the film could be about and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I said, but, but, um, but Hey, listen, um, we can do this any number of ways, but, um, I, I, I think it really needs to be told in a warts and all kind of way because these were not perfect people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about a time and a place that we are not living in now. And we need to address that because if we don't address it, and when I say that, what I mean is the political incorrectness. Oh, sure. Of, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Of the content, which believe me was rampant. Um, and, and just the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, blah, 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 blah. If we ignore that, like, you know, it's just not, it's not, that's just not an honest portrayal or an honest uh, depiction, I should say, of of the story. And JJ was, you know, uh, the producer, you know, just said 100%, boom. Uh, I said, what's off limits? And you said nothing. That's awesome, dude. Nothing's off limits. And so that's not something you find very often, I don't think. Especially in docs. No, especially currently. I saw that section of the film too, where you guys are discussing that in, in the political correctness. And then the thing I kind of liked about it was the was addressing addressing the seventies because when when we talk about the seventies and we talk about Woodstock and we talk about hippies and and it's sort of in the ethos at this point and in the advertising, uh, it's sort of been become sort of like this fairy tale myth like what was it like to be a hippie and what was this whole lifestyle like and if you look there's two sides to that story there are the sides that people are like peace love and fucking happiness and it was amazing and then there's the other side where it's like those people were just fucking homeless fucking assholes exactly like yeah like if you look at a person that you would see on the street today and go oh that guy's a hippie versus (laughs) what you would see on the street in 1975 and say that guy's a hippie 
there's a big difference. I think there's a, <laughs> I think there's a, uh, yeah. I think the hip, if you saw a guy on the street now that, you know, you know, you'd go, Oh, he's like, you know, he's woke. Like he's like, he, he gets it. Like, you know, I mean, you'd like to think, but like then, like it was, they, they were just, as, not all of them, but they were just as like, they were after the same thing that like, you know, your average, uh, uh, I should, I'm not going to go there, but I was yeah, going to say your yeah. average um, young person that's rioting against the system. You know what I mean? That thank kind of, you. Yeah, yes. I didn't want to name a specific no, but it's true. Like, personality type, but yes, yeah, yeah. Because so, um, there was plenty. I mean, you know, you're talking about uh, people that are living together 24 seven. These were not people that were, uh, you know, they weren't innocent in that way i mean they were you know as it says right there in the film you know people were sleeping with you know i mean it was it, it was like a commune and and uh there wasn't a lot of uh uh what's the word i'm looking for commitment there yeah for sure and it's not as good it's not as glamorous it's not no, as glamorous no. as no. as you know we like to make it where it's no. you know you, you watch a couple movies and they show hippies and you're like, wow, that must've been so freeing. And you're just oh, like, they're so great. They just peace and love. And yeah. Yeah. No. yeah right. It was like a whole lot of dirty nights and you know, exactly. it's, a, it's not as glamorous as one would think. And no. I think that's important, man. I think that was a great core. There's a great part of the film that talks about that stuff. And I think, I think as we continue on and we were sort of inundated with, the the uh, the watered down versions of history because they're yeah. put through entertainment and they're put through certain perspectives and you don't see all the sides to that perspective. I think it's a really important that you're honest about it. I think it's really important that we show the different angles of it because because not because now you have what's happening, which is like people doing the same shit. And not learning from the fucking issues that were, exactly. that were prior. Yeah, no, no, you're right. And and I like I, I said you know, and I think JJ agreed. It was like if we do it any other way, we're just bullshitting. We're not. Yep. We're not telling the truth. And I didn't want to do something that wasn't telling the truth. And you know, um, and there was a lot of uh, you know, there was there was sexism, there was misogyny, there was all those things. But having said that, I also made a point of showing in the film that there were, you know, probably more female writers than there were male writers. Yes. They didn't take any shit either. So um, these were not, you know, these were women that were, you know, opinionated, um, strong, and um, and help make cream what it was. So it was not, even though it was a, a magazine, as it says in the film, for thirteen-year-old boys. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, a lot of the writers writing the captions were women. Mm-hmm. So there was a certain power, I think, in, in in that. And I made sure that you know, for example, when uh, uh, one of the writers uh, uh, dismisses the Runaways as just a bunch of, you know. Uh, hacks that can't play music. I made sure Joan Jett had the last word, and <laughs> I made sure that Joan Jett, you know, read her. And she, I, I, we actually had her. We actually found her resp- her response to the letter um, to from the writer. Again, don't want to spoil too much. 
and I and we got her to write. I'm sorry, we got her to read her <laughs> That's response. Awesome. That's awesome. And so I made sure she got the last word. So can yeah. well, okay. So can you imagine not having? So if you're writing a magazine for 13 year olds, you don't have to hire 13 year olds to write it. <laughs> like we live in this crazy world right now, where it's like right. you can't do that unless you're that person. And I think it's so inspiring to hear that most of the writers were women writing for 13 year old kids and understanding what 13 year old boys wanted to read. You know, there's something interesting about that. I guess. No, there really, there really is. And, you know, a lot of the content was, I think it was Jeff Daniels that said, you know, it was like reading playboy. You didn't want your parents to read it. And <laughs> I can remember buying cream and national lampoon, you know, I mean, this was years later. It wasn't the late seventies. It was more like early eighties. Yeah. But I can remember buying national lampoon and cream and hiding them under my bed for the yeah. same reason, <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but you got to remind yourself that even though it was written for 13 year old boys, the writing was just, I mean, some of the most, I mean, you're talking about Richard Meltzer, Nick Toshis, Griel Marcus, uh, uh, Dave Marsh, Lester Banks. I mean, these are some of the greatest music critics of all time. And they all spent, they all wrote for, for Cream. And um, so there's no denying the impact that they made on the writers of today. And uh, uh, I think that's how perhaps you can kind of not necessarily get away with the fact that it was, you know, uh, written for, you know, horny 13 year olds, <laughs> but, but, um, and it may have been, but, uh, at, at the end of the day, it was, it was, you know, really intelligent, um, uh, brilliantly written magazine. Well, so. but that was their end. You know what I mean? That makes sense. I mean, that whole generation was fucking horny at that point because you're dealing with the free love and you're dealing with the 60s. And you're dealing with all that sort of stuff. So, you know, what is the end today? You know, social issues. Everybody's got a fucking social issue and that's your end. That's how you get people to read the context. So yeah, good point. Yeah. It, it makes sense that that was their move, you know? Yeah, no, good point. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting, man. It's a, like like I said, I, I watched it before we talked. I think it's a great film. Uh, great. I think that everybody should check it out if you love documentaries. And I know you guys are all documentary junkies right now with Netflix. Um, then you should definitely check this out. Where can they see your movie at this point? Well, it actually uh, we're um, it actually opens. I'm sorry, not opens. We're not talking about theaters. It. Uh, <laughs> premieres start playing on amazon and itunes on friday fuck yeah man so i hope you guys check it out um it's a short roller coaster ride of a film um but i think uh i think there's something in it for everyone and uh you know i hope that uh i hope you guys check it out there's a lot of great content you've got everyone from joan jett to chad smith to god who else is in it uh uh, Thurston Moore, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Marsh, who's, uh, you know, uh, Alice, Co- Alice Cooper's in there. Like Alice Cooper's in there. Um, the gr- uh, Susie Quattro. So it's really a who's who of, of seventies rock and roll. And, uh, it, it's a, it's a no holds barred. Um, you know, the gloves are off kind of documentary. And, uh, 
And uh, I think there's something in it for everyone. And it's an interesting, like getting the band together kind of story, you know, with this magazine and, and this, this band of misfits that all get pulled together and then dealing with the different attitudes and the different egos and, and uh, how young a lot of these uh, guys and girls were and, and what it was like to create in that volatile like vacuum essentially that they had made for themselves. So uh, I, I dig it, man. I dig it. And uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And yeah, that's, you know, you uh, just on an end note, um, that's exactly how we frame the film as if the people that were making cream were in fact a film. I'm sorry. were in fact a band. band yeah. Um, so you had Dave Marsh, you had Lester Bangs and you had Barry Kramer. And, you know, obviously there were a lot of other great contributors, but, they were really the core. And when that core fell apart, the band fell apart. What are you listening to these days, dude, to being a rock guy? What, what, do, you, what, do, what do you like now? Um, I'm all over the place, really. Um, I listen to uh, like a lot of post-rock stuff. So I listen to like, you know instrumental post-rock like if these trees could talk or explosions mm-hmm. in the sky oh yeah yeah um, stuff like that uh i i i i have to i gotta let the guys know in uh, witch taint that i i, I gave them a shout out because i like them because they're so <laughs> fucking funny um but i my my tastes are all over the place i listen to to uh you know i'll, I'll listen to pharaoh sanders and then i'll put on minor threat and then I'll put on Naked Ray Gun, and then I'll I'll put on, uh, you know, uh, Frank Zappa. So I mean, uh, it's really all 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 over the place. But uh, I'm trying to think of something that's like blown me away recently. What did I just buy? Uh, let's see, what did I just buy the other day? I went to the record store and I bought three albums. Um, uh, let's see. Well, the one album I bought was Coffee. Which was a soundtrack by, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's got, um, uh, oh God, what's my problem? Uh, uh, she played uh, Foxy Brown. Oh, um, uh, uh, Pam Greer. Pam Greer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought that soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. Uh, great soundtrack. I think uh, Ayers, uh, Leo Ayers wrote that and uh, wrote the music for that. And then I bought um, a Serge Gansberg album. Um, so yeah, I mean, my, my tastes are all over the place. How about you? What are you listening to? Well, so I got really depressed for a while. So, and I, I did, I did an episode, episode a while ago with my buddy, um, uh, George, who's in, uh, Zarface. He's the DJ from Zarface. And we went to his record store and I sat down in the store and we actually did an episode together. And I was just like, yeah. And I was like, fuck man. Like I'm just cause Spotify and the algorithms, what had happened was is some, for some reason in between sort of doing music videos and dealing with the labels and being in the business, I sort of got really sort of disenfranchised and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out. Um, and so a couple of years when imagine that happening. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> so for a couple of years, I couldn't, you know, I would just listen to whatever someone else was listening to. I got really deep into like the new retro wave sound. And so I was like digging back into and being a director myself, you know, a horror movie director, I started to go into like John Carpenter and the old yeah. synth sounds. And yeah, yeah, I love, I, I just, uh, I love the John Carpenter stuff. I just bought uh, an LP, uh, fuck, what was it? 
uh, is it his new stuff? Because his new yeah, stuff is great new too. Stuff. Yeah, his new, new stuff is yeah. really good. Um, and then I just got deep into like Moog and fucking synthesizers and got into right. that stuff for a while. Um, but then my girlfriend actually did me a pretty good solid uh, during COVID for my birthday. She went out and she bought me a record player. And I haven't had a record player since I was a kid. Uh, my wife did the same thing, but go ahead. And dude, it was just like, I can go, oh, right. I can go to vinyl shops again. I can go to music shops again. And so, you know, we're safely doing it during COVID where you go in, you wear your gloves, you wear your mask, and only a certain amount of people can go in. But, uh, I, dude, we've, for the past like two or three weekends, we'll go to the record store on Saturday and just flip through albums for three hours. And I've pulled classics. Yeah. Um, what did I just, I grabbed the, um, the, uh, Manhunter soundtrack, the old Michael. Manhunter. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, it's that's, so- uh, wait, don't tell me that's uh Mike. No, that's fuck. Who did that? Oh, dude, it's not in front of me and I'd have to get up. Uh, Is it, it's not, ha- uh, shit. Hold on, I'm getting up. Hold on. <laughs> I know, I, I know who it is. Uh, it's um, it's not Hans Zimmer. It's um, it's yeah, Mike it's something. A, it's a collection. So hold on. So they just did a Waxworks just put it out. They just did a new release of it. I'll I'll fucking advertise it. So uh, Manhunter was the old Michael Mann film. So that yep, was. Yeah, I know. I've seen it. It's a great film. Yeah, great movie. And so this has got a collection from. A bunch of the songs in it. So, uh, like, uh, Strong As I Am from the Prime Movers. That song is fucking amazing. Ah, I love that band. Uh, yeah, Shriek, Shriekback's got... Uh, oh, Shriekback. Nice. They've got a bunch of, like, <laughs> inst- like instrumentals that are on here. The Reds. Okay. I was totally wrong. Okay. Uh, it's a great... It, like I said, Waxworks is doing some pretty cool fucking releases right now for fun. And I think today, I mean, we're recording this on the 26th. Today's fucking record store day, too. So. Oh, shit. Is it? I think it is, dude. I didn't know. I thought that was tomorrow. Wait, what's today? Friday? Wait, what's fucking today? Or is today Tuesday? Today? Well, is it today? Let's see. Today's the 26th. So today's Wednesday. So it's oh, e- Wednesday. I thought it was Friday, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah, it's okay. maybe it is Friday. Maybe I'm fucking it up. <laughs> Uh, See, this is the fun part about music. This is what music used to be. What day does this shit come out? When's the album release day? And when I was in the vinyl shop, um, it used to be Tuesdays. Tuesdays, right? Right. Yeah. It's oh, I know the other record I bought: Robert Gordon and uh, and um, uh, oh god damn it! Uh, um, I don't know it. I don't know where you're Robert going. Robert Gordon and. Uh, Link Ray. I that was don't, the other, I the don't, other album I bought. Robert yeah. Gordon? I don't know it. I have to look Robert Gordon and Link Ray. It's like a rockabilly record. Oh, cool. So I'm all over the place. But, um, Dude, but me. yeah, man, like getting a turntable and just – and there's something about like – this is going to sound weird. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but there's like – there are a few favorite smells – uh-huh. I have. I'm uh-huh. going to regret saying this. Nope. There are a few favorite smells I have in my life, right? Mm-hmm. One of the, okay, top three. Ready? Mm. Number one, the smell of a used record store. Yes. It's it's a combination of. Like mildew. Mildew. <laughs> and like, just like well-worn records and just like cigarettes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
second might be clove cigarettes because it reminds me of like the 80s mm-hmm. like goth chicks would be got i'm sorry goth girls <laughs> would be like smoking <laughs> clove cigarettes yeah and then my third is probably a really sweaty club where it just stinks of cigarettes and sweat oh my god oh my so, god you know so there's nothing better than a than a a uh, a, a record store smell like when what Especially the ones that have been around for a long time, where it's just like embedded in the fucking yo, dude, like, I'm fucking drywall. You know, it's just like gross. <sighs> dude, I love it too, man. You're out here in Los Angeles as well, right? No, dude, I'm in DC. You're in DC, okay, yeah. Because out here in LA, there's still a bunch of really great fucking record stars. Are there? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sure. I, I mean, I know the one that everyone knows, but I'm sure there's a millions of millions of others that I don't know. But like Amoeba. Of course, is is always fun to go. Well, through, the but. the the news about Amoeba because I, I I went to because we just moved out here at this point almost a year ago uh, finally, mm-hmm. but and we went that was one of my first stops. I'm like Amoeba's still open. I'm fucking going. Where are you in L.A.? So we're up in uh, Glendale area. So we're Glendale. We're, okay, Glendale. Yeah, I know. I, I have a friend in Glendale. Yeah, okay. so we're right. east. Um, so uh, we went to Amoeba. I was there was awesome went through all their their stacks they have listening stations and then they shut down so they oh. closed it uh yes. and it was so fucking depressing it was like god damn it the place is closed but i've heard rumors and who knows with covid but i've heard rumors that they're reopening at a new location i think the actual rent in that spot put them down but that's what i heard but i wasn't sure if that was true or not so i didn't know dude I, it didn't make sense to me when i was in there that place was fucking packed and I was and just it, like, how are people it, in here buying fucking CDs? <laughs> I know. But the other thing about it that I couldn't get over is, is that it's fucking huge. Yeah. I mean, I'm used to going to like little tiny indie stores that are like the size of my fucking living room. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that place was huge. So, but they were such a, such a great, such a great store. And, uh, you know, there's so many great stores across the country. Um, Maybe someone should make a doc about that, or maybe not. I don't know. I but. think so, dude. Well, here's the thing that happened, right? So, so uh, Gina, my girlfriend, bought me the record player, and she's she's younger than I am. She, I don't think she's ever had a record player, never been in that. And I know she remembers music stores because she used to go to music stores. But uh, what it did, and a lot of people are like, why haven't? Well, that's such a hipster move. Why have a fucking record player? And you go, well, no, 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 no. Here's the thing: when right. you play an album. It only plays a certain amount of songs, and then you physically need to get up and go and flip that album over and change the songs again, which yeah. means it puts you in the space. You're current. You're listening. You're actually listening, and you become familiar on what point on that album the song is. And because it's such a laborious thing to do, quote, quote, laborious thing right. to do, you're listening to the B-sides. You're actually spending time with the other songs in the album which is great. And so we've picked up like, I picked up an old Thompson twins fucking album that had a couple right. of hits on it. And I'm loving the B sides that I've never heard before. Right. Uh, so the, the actual physical activity, and then now we'll sit around and eat dinner or we'll pull it on an album. We'll have, I'll have friends over just to listen to albums again. Right. I'm, I'm like, what is this? 19 fucking 92, 93. Right? But you know, that's so fucking true. And it, and it, goes back to my story about the record store because his whole thing was like, look, um, 
No, no genres. I want people to look through. Mm-hmm. I want people to look through every. I mean, I mean, we had tens of thousands of records in this store. It was fucking. I don't know how many. Maybe thirty, forty thousand, fifty thousand records. I don't know. It was huge. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and he said, "No, I want people to be looking for whatever artist they're looking for, and then stumble across another artist." And go, hmm, this looks interesting. And it's kind of the same thing when you buy an album. It's kind of, because like it, you don't have the lug. I mean, you can if you want, but with a CD player, you're like, oh, this song sucks. Boom, fast forward. Sure. But, but with a turntable, you're like, eh, I'm too lazy to like get up and like move the needle and you know. So you end up listening to the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. You know, and so there's something to that, and I think. Albums, you know, LPs were meant to be listened to in their entirety. And um, and so I don't know what my point is, except that I think that um, there's something to be said for, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, seeking out uh, entire albums and not just doing the Spotify bullshit where it's like one song. Well, and dude, I would go even further with that and say this. And this is relevant for the filmmakers on this show and the people that love movies on this show, right? We've talked about this in the past. If you go back to like 1983, I think it when it was when uh, The Thing came out. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yep, yep. If you talk to anybody right now, they talk about what an amazing fucking movie that is. I love that yep. movie. It's in everybody's Bible. Everybody's like horror movie Bible thing. That movie came out at the same year that fucking E.T. came out. Yep. And so E.T. destroyed. You had... Uh, Steven Spielberg doing amazing Steven Spielberg shit. You had a fucking puppet during the time of Muppets and all that other shit. You have this like friendly little alien that literally follows Reese's pieces across the carpet and then all the advertising that comes with that. And so the entire culture is programmed or on the wavelength rather of E.T., right? Correct. And so then they're going to go see a movie (laughs) with a crazy shape-shifting fucking alien that is disgusting and a movie that ends on the most depressing note, period. And they fucking hated it. And that movie got terrible reviews. That movie bombed. And the only reason why it bombed was because in the ethos, in the zeitgeist on that period of time, that's what people wanted was E.T., was that was that thing and i feel the same way with music there are tracks that i'll hear that uh fit into the zeitgeist that's in my mind or the zeitgeist that's in public where you're like man this kanye track's pretty good the fucking bass beats are great and that fucking trap beat that's going on in the background is pretty awesome and it's all those elements that make sense for that and so the, the issue I have with algorithms is algorithms are like, hey, guess what? You like trap beats. You like this sort of thing. Here's fucking 500 more of them. And then yep. you get lost in that circle. And eventually you hit a point where you're like, everything tastes the same. Is music just suck right now? Like everybody's just doing the same thing. And what you don't realize is that there's tons of really good shit coming out and tons of really good artists that are inspired by their life experiences and not necessarily trying to recreate another artist's sound not necessarily trying to do that. And so when you have an album and you put an album on, listen to the sales pitch for old technology. When you put an album on, you listen to those B-sides and you're like, the first time you hear it, go, this is fucking weird. And then the second time you hear it, you go, huh, they're doing something weird with the instrumentals on that. 
And the third time you hear it, because you're listening to it in a certain circumstance, you're like, I fucking dig this track. This track is really cool, man. This is the best song in the album. Why is no one else into this fucking thing like the way I am? And that was the and, that was the power of it, you know. Yeah, and the beauty of that is that that song becomes yours. Yes. That's like, okay. Yeah. It's it's kind of like when you when you know a band and uh, they suddenly become huge. You're like, yeah, but I knew them before you knew them. Mm-hmm. And, or like when that song that you heard for the third time all of a sudden becomes a single. You're like, you know, and there's a weird ownership thing with that it's bizarre you know that only you know i think musician you know people that are really into music uh probably understand but uh but no absolutely and i think uh you know i think that uh the resurgence of vinyl is is a wonderful thing and i you know i think that um i'm discovering stuff all the time and i'm i'm you know, I'm going back, I'm going forward, I'm going all over the place. I'm just, I'm just enjoying finding out and, and hearing stuff that I'd never uh, heard before, or at least not heard in the same way that I hear now. I hear it with a different set of ears. And, uh, and I just think that that's, uh, you know, I just think that's so important. And, you know, uh, I, you know, the thought of not you know, there was a period of time where, as you said, where I was just, um, it, it just wasn't a good time for me. Sure. And I wasn't, I wasn't hearing music. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, uh, interested in the same way that I am now. And now I look at it or I hear it and I go, wow, this is like, you know, it's just, it, you, you go back to that time when you were a kid and you go like, this is what fucking matters. This is, you know, I know I'm going through some shit right now, but like hearing this particular song moves me in a way that nothing else does. And it kind of makes it all worth it. So, well, dude, and most of the time that happens when you're experiencing growth. And right. so it ends up being the soundtrack for growth. That's true. And no, I, th- right. And I think that an important portion of what you were just saying there i think something that we should all examine because i know that there are some folks listening that are like here are two fucking guys in their 40s and they're talking about the great old days and ah it's like no no listen whether it's vinyl whether you're creating and you're you're hunting through spotify and building your own playlists whether you're hanging out with friends and friends are sharing their playlists with you and friends are sharing experiences with you or if you once we break out of fucking COVID and you're going back out to bars and someone's playing music yeah. in that bar and you're pulling out your fucking app that can recognize what that track is and you're like fucking you're laying those things in. The most important, I think the thing to, 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 to take away from this is this. We live in a time period right now where we can literally shape our entire lives, hunt for the news, hunt for entertainment that we want to see and we want to hear. We can literally just dictate exactly what we're going to ingest, and we can have any statement that we make vilify or justified by doing a Google search. So I could right. say the world's fucking flat, and I can go Google search that shit, and someone's going to have an article saying, you're right, the world's fucking flat. And so with what we're talking about with vinyls and with music, it's a very small piece of the larger picture here. 
remember that when you just close yourself down to like a genre, if you just close yourself down to a sound, if you close yourself down into this thing, you're not hearing something new. And you have to ask yourself, am I hearing both sides of the story? Am I developing? Am I hearing how this thing actually comes together? Am I forming my own opinion? And then if I do form my own opinion, am I judging my opinion and staying in the gray area instead of being black or white with any situation that we're in? And I try not to bring things political on this show and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but this is symbolic for something larger. (laughs) I I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, uh, uh, again, I think it's all about evolving and it's about, uh, you know, not caring. Uh, And I don't think that comes with, with age. I think that comes from confidence and from just knowing what uh, what the music, how the music feels to you. Is the music moving you? Great. I don't care what fucking genre it is. Does it speak to me? Great. I don't. Who cares what it's called? You know, just just it's about how it's about what the music does for you personally and and uh you know i look at my kids uh now i'm really gonna sound that old (laughs) i look at my kids ipad i you know ipod or and i look at their songs and i'm like god 30 years ago i've been i would have been like what the fuck like there's no connection between any of these songs like usually with me there'd always be this sort of like this sort of underlying like oh okay like you know, this sort of connect the dots kind of thing. Sure, sure, sure. But for them, it's all over the place, whether it's like emo punk to like, you know, Lizzo. I don't, I don't, you know, it's all over the place. But what matters is, is that it means something to them. And every song says something and means something differently to them. And ultimately, that's kind of what the whole point is. So, why limit yourself? Why, you know, why break it down by, and I, and I, and I say this from experience because I was guilty of this. Why, you know, break it down into genres or like, Oh, that's not cool. You can't like that. You know? And, and that's what I love about, you know, um, so many people, you know, well, or I can only speak about my kids, but, but that's what I love about them is that they're just like, they don't, that doesn't even occur to them. Like I can't say to them, wait, you like fucking um, Kanye, but then you also like, you know, (laughs) minor threat. Like, I don't understand like what, but it doesn't matter to them. It's all, it all means something different to them. And um, that's great. I I wish I, I could have been that way. And I think that that's, uh, I think that's really important. And I think that that's, uh, at the end of the day, it's all that fucking matters, man. Like it's just about the music and and how it moves you. I mean, whatever. Who who fucking cares? It's just like, how, does it move you? Yes. Boom. That's it. Done. everybody i hope you guys enjoyed this episode uh it was a lot of fun talking to scott was a blast 
I felt like they hit a point at the end of the show. I hope you guys stuck with us, but I felt like I was back in the music store just bitching about music. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it, man. And I just want to say this. I'm not judging you on how you listen to your music. If you guys are Spotify, if you figured out how to make Spotify work for you, fuck yes. And if you're sharing music, however you do it, that's awesome. And it's amazing. And the thing about music is it's supposed to affect you in a specific way. So celebrate that. And remember that when you listen to a good song, that song becomes a timestamp. It literally is a is a is a is like a memory capsule. I don't know how many times that I'll go back and listen to a track that I heard when I was 14, 15, 12, and I instantly get transported back to that moment when I first heard it. It's the power of music. I fucking love it. It's one of the most important elements of making film is soundtrack, scoring, and music, and what it emotionally does to the audience what it emotionally means when you play a song. Really excited about this episode. I'm so happy that you guys rode along with us. And as always, thank you so much for your support. Continue to follow me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or follow the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process, P-O-D on Instagram. There you could throw suggestions for guests. You can give me feedback on the show. Uh, you can tell me I suck. <laughs> whatever you want. I am posting things there all the time. I'm usually posting about the music I listen to, the food I eat, all the same shit that everybody else posts about now. I try to keep it fun and curated. And it gives you a bit of a glimpse into the asshole that says shit and apparently talks too long in his fucking intros. And there's someone out there that knows who I'm fucking talking about. <laughs> anyway, guys, I love you. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next Tuesday.